Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. And welcome to this week's edition of Family Stories, the podcast written by you, our listeners. This week's family stories include a hair-raising amphibious assault, a long turn in a POW camp, a brave man in Burma, and a childhood under German occupation. We begin this week with this story from Nigel Leaney. Dear James and Al, I'm fortunate to be of the generation whose immediate family served in the war. Dad was four para, sixth airborne. One uncle was one para, captured at Arnhem. Two uncles were marines, one captured at Singapore. I had a couple of RAF tradesmen in the family, as well as two aunts in the land army. I'd like to share my uncle Roy's recollections of Walcheren. In late October 1944, I was again aboard LCF-32, heading for the port of Ostend, where we were briefed as to the task that lay ahead. This was to provide close gun support to 4147 and 48 Commando of the 4th Special Service Brigade, who were to assault the island of Walcheren across the shallows of the Scheldt estuary. We were told quite bluntly this was to be no picnic, as the island was heavily defended with some 50 AA guns and coastal batteries, plus the German 70th Division. On the afternoon of the 31st of October, orders were passed for all hands to bathe and change into clean underwear, ready for action. We sailed early that evening and came in sight of Walker and Island at about 07.30 hours on the 1st of November. I remember the weather was cold and bleak, the sky overcast and with a slight sea mist. As we closed in towards the island, we came under very heavy fire from the German 88s and heavy mortars. The squadron was hit severely with several craft being lost and some casualties. We were lucky, hit several times but we sustained no casualties. At about 1000 hours, we received a radio message that the Canadians with Number 4 Army Commando had landed at Flushing on the mainland side of the island and were ordered to support them. The remaining craft were reformed and with battle ensigns flying, turned into line ahead and ran for the breaches blown in the dike by the RAF. As we steamed at full speed ahead, we could hear the bottom of the craft grating across the gravel of the seabed, hoping against hope we would not ground, which would leave us as sitting ducks. 
turning at the end of our run, we gained a few extra knots from the running tide and opened up with every gun we could on the German positions, on the high ground and in the dunes. They, in their turn, plastered us with every gun they could bring to bear. Our young lieutenant, known to us as Dagwood because he looked so much like the cartoon character, stood in the bow with his binoculars, calling the shots when they fired and warning us when to duck. With LCF 37 ahead of us and 26 astern, we continued firing until 37 took a shell forward, then one astern. She was still firing when she took a third amidships, smack in her magazine, and went up in a ball of flame. We too had received several more hits, and looking aft, I could see 26 was swamped, clouded in spray from the shells falling all around her, but still struggling on. A heavy armour-piercing shell struck our port pom-pom, passing straight through the gun platform, through the captain's cabin beneath the bridge, the radio room, the spud locker, the drying room, and into the galley on the starboard side, before exploding and blowing open the deck by my starboard pom-pom, killing the gunner and motor mechanic. As the smoke cleared, the skipper popped his head up to ask if we were okay. Yours truly was just about to cut the last tie of a Carly float, ready to go over the side. We were in a mess. The fire hoses, pipes and appliances on the starboard side were gone, and the aft starboard Ehrlichan was on fire. The marine in charge of that gun, Jock Proudfoot, a Scot from Glasgow, was up to his elbows in the locker, grabbing the stored rounds and tossing them over the side. His quick action, without doubt, saved us from what would have been a nasty explosion aft. After a short lull, I was suddenly hurled across the deck from the starboard side by the blast of another shell. It's true, you never hear the one with your name on it. I didn't, just a blinding flash of light and a cloud of smoke. I'd been lucky, crouched down behind the combing as the shell hit. I was uninjured, just winded by the blast. Another shell struck us portside and we struggled to jam hammocks and drive wooden wedges into the holes to stem the flow as the sea rushed in. There was no doubt, but that we had taken the brunt of the enemy's fire. By 1300 hours the commandos were ashore, but it was to cost them dearly, the 4th Brigade sustaining some 500 casualties. Our ship was sorely hurt, holed and taking water. With one engine gone, we could do nothing but run her up onto the beach and pump her out. As evening descended, we kedged off and limped out to sea, signalling a destroyer to take us in tow as we had not been able to repair the damaged engine, only to receive the reply, Sorry, but you are in a minefield. Good thing it was now high tide and that we only drew three feet forward and six feet aft. For the next 72 hours and without hot food, without sleep and with the pumps going continuously, we limped on our one engine back to our stand. As we approached the harbour, Commander Sellers came on board, going directly to the bridge where he asked for a Marine's beret. Putting it on, he turned to our skipper and said, Now, you can take her in. Job well done. Once in and tied up, hot food was brought on board and well fed, we slung our hammocks and crashed. Boy, did we sleep. Next morning, we awoke early to find the mess deck awash, the water up over our ankles, and our ship sitting firmly on the harbour bottom. The Army Fire Service came to our aid and pumped us dry while we were plugging every hole we could find and trying to make the mess decks as livable as possible. Later in the day, Commander Sellers again came on board and we were mustered on deck. He pointed to a lovely motor ship laying alongside us. Go home in her. Five days survivor leave. See a skipper first. Dismissed. 
When we returned below to the mess decks, there came a pipe from the skipper. Help me get this ship back to England and I will see what I can do. With rough repairs completed, we slowly worked our way across the channel, heading past the white cliffs of Dover and on past the beaches of Hastings, Brighton and Worthing. All the time, keeping close inshore, so close that we could almost reach out and touch the piers, ready at any time to run her up on the beach. Finally, we arrived off cows, tying up to an ammunition barge. We de-ammunitioned the ship before being winched up a slipway. Our captain reported to headquarters, and on his return, the ship simply said, thank you all for getting this ship back home. Our captain reported to headquarters, and on his return to the ship, simply said, thank you all for getting this ship back home. Both watches 21 days leave apiece. The entire company of LCF 32 were put in for a recommendation, with the skipper awarded a DSO and Jock Proudfoot a DSM. It was unknown to us at the time that the eastern flank close support squadron had been all but destroyed at Walcheren. Of the squadron's 28 craft engaged in the assault, nine had been sunk, 11 put completely out of action, and the remaining eight damaged. Sadly, our squadron, or what was left of it, was disbanded. Thanks for sharing my Uncle Roy's story. Best wishes, Nigel Leaney. Our next story this week is from Simon Errington. Hello, I was brought up on a healthy diet of war movies and plastic soldiers and was amazed at eight years old to find out that my granddad had been in the war. I set about badgering him with inane and frankly stupid questions, expecting him to tell rip-roaring tales straight out of the pages of a commando comic. In reality, what I received were vague and short answers. Over the years I've been told titbits he served on Crete, was captured, he walked a lot, it was cold, and eventually he was liberated by Patton in 1945. My inquisitive mind was never really swayed by this, so I dug out some of his personal belongings, and among them stumbled over photographs of him in Stalag 8B. There he was, my granddad. Sapper George Arnold Wood joined up in January 1940. I don't think it was for any moral crusade, it was probably more about money. He never struck me as a fighter or a burly soldier, but he was always a grafter. He was a bricklayer by trade and became an artisan worker in 667 Company, Royal Engineers, tasked with building roads, airfields, barracks, etc. In 1941, he was sent to Crete, where he was captured and eventually moved to Stalag 8B in Lambsdorff, Silesia. Here he saw his time out, going through God only knows what on a daily basis. The photographs I have of him and his comrades make them look happy and content and I hope that they were, although I think this could also be the making of some good old-fashioned German propaganda. All that's on the postcards are his name, nothing else, no personal words to family or updates on his health, just a photo of him on an unknown date, stamped Stalag 8B Gepruft. He stayed there until near the end of the war when he was forced on one of the many death marches. He caught malaria in the camp, which plagued him for the rest of his life. He had a terrible scar on the bridge of his nose, which, so the story went, was from a particularly brutal encounter with some Polish prisoners over food. He hated cats, really hated them, because I believe he was reduced to catching and eating strays. So much so that when he arrived home and discovered my grandma had a cat, he proceeded to immediately eject it from the property. 
He came home weighing some six or seven stone in a USGI uniform and about two sizes too big. Upon arriving home in Gateshead, he sought out my grandma, knocking on the door expecting a warm embrace, only to find she had moved. He spent the next few hours walking the streets of Gateshead, whistling a tune looking for Kid, Grandma's nickname. He eventually found her and lived happily until the right old age of 80, sadly passing away in 1993. I miss him dearly. He never struck me as someone who considered himself brave or a hero, but knowing more about what he went through, he is certainly a hero to me. I think the saddest thing I found was a photo postcard of him in his desert uniform at a table in a bar. He was addressed to my grandma and said simply, Here's hoping to see you soon. So long, kid. Gee. Kiss, 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 kiss. That was probably one of the last times she heard from him until 1946. So here's to you, Grandad Georgie. Sapper G.A. Wood. Thanks, Simon Errington. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Our next story is from Andrew Cranfield. Dear Alan James, I thought that this family story of my uncle, Geoffrey Cranfield, may be of interest. He was commissioned into the 2nd Battalion King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry in Burma in October 1941. The regimental history provides an overriding impression that the KOYLI was woefully ill-equipped when they went into action against the Japanese, despite having been in Burma for a few years. They were not trained or equipped to fight jungle warfare. The shortage of equipment meant they didn't even have tin helmets. They also had a shortage of entrenching tools, so were unable to dig in and had to mostly fight the Japanese in the open. An essential for jungle warfare was a good compass, and they only had 20. They had no two-inch mortars and only four of the heavier three-inch ones. There were no sniper rifles, and the machine gun platoon had their Vickers 303s taken away to be used by a Burmese unit guarding an airfield. They didn't have any wireless sets, no mines or materials for making booby traps. The battalion should have had 52 lorries and drivers, but only received seven, and those were in a bad state of repair. They should have also had 10 Bren gun carriers, but they were away being trained and didn't rejoin until halfway through the campaign. The 2nd Battalion were engaged in fierce fighting as they retreated from the Japanese. In the regimental history, Geoffrey first gets a mention in the retreat from Salween to Sitang, where his platoon surprised a large party of Japanese travelling on bicycles. Having retreated from Sitang after very tough rearguard fights, they then had to cross the Sitang River after the bridge was blown. This meant that the men had to build rafts or swim across while being machine-gunned by Japanese aircraft. The challenge of this tidal river can be determined by the fact that the crossing took on average two hours to cover the 1,000 yards. It would appear Jeffrey's platoon was one of the last to cross. Despite some outstanding feats of endurance and bravery, the 2nd Battalion was now reduced to fewer than 100 officers and men, including Jeffrey. When the battalion was near Humorbi, Jeffrey was noted as being an efficient and fearless young officer who had already distinguished himself at Sitang. While in trucks, his platoon ran into a roadblock and his CO was mortally wounded. Jeffrey is recorded as having tried to unsuccessfully set the Japanese position on fire with grenades. He was then sent to investigate a significant movement of a large body of unknown troops with Corporal Housen. After crawling up to the road, they observed the enemy troop movements for nearly an hour. They lay so close to the road they were nearly trodden on by a Japanese officer's horse. It was recognised later that the battalion's rearguard action at Magwe on the banks of the Irrawaddy effectively saved the 1st Brigade. It was during this action that Geoffrey was sent out with two men to investigate some heavy firing. They were suddenly fired on about three miles east and the only survivor, Private Burroughs, who was injured in the leg, saw Lance Corporal Wynne Stanley and Geoffrey fall. Burroughs managed to make his way north and fell in with some Indian soldiers who brought him back over the Yin Chong. 
That night, a huge force of Japanese closed in on the battalion, and the CO ordered a withdrawal just before the Japanese entered their positions. The KOYLI fought magnificently during the four-and-a-half-month evacuation of Burma, but it was at a terrible cost. On arrival at Imphal, there were only six officers and 85 men left. We are not a particularly military family, but, like millions of others, my relatives of that generation stepped forward to do their bit. More than 50 of the 2nd Battalion were posted as missing believed killed, all without known graves, which included Geoffrey, a fact I find so very sad and moving. I feel it is so important to remember these individuals who gave their all. With the very best wishes, Andrew Cranfield. Our final story this week comes from Robert Bisson. I live on Jersey, as my father Michael did. When I was at school, he wrote down his experiences under occupation for a project I was doing, and I'd like to share them. A childhood under German occupation. One evening, the air raid sounded, and my father and grandfather ran in from work as the first bombs fell. We sheltered under the dining room table in my grandmother's house. They were releasing bombs right overhead, and the noise was very frightening. Afterwards, we moved to live at Clubley Estate, near a large anti-aircraft battery. When Allied planes flew over, they went off with a crack. In the field opposite, the Germans used to train, and you could see them crawling through the grass. We kept rabbits and chickens in the basement, bringing them in at night to prevent them being stolen. The day before one of the hens was to be killed for Christmas, one of them laid an egg. We didn't know which one, so neither could be killed, and they ended up both living until after the liberation. Because the shops had so little to sell, they only opened three days a week, and for very short hours. We used to go on long walks in the country gathering twigs to burn. The night of D-Day was very noisy. Planes were going over all night with the German guns firing at them. During the summer holidays, we used to go and stay at La Roque. In 1944, the German machine gun on top of the Martello Tower at Platte Rock fired on a passing American bomber. Unfortunately, he still had some bombs on board and dropped three. He missed the tower, two landed in the sea, but the last destroyed several houses, including the one we were staying in. In the winter of 44-45, we had no coal, no gas and no electricity. We had to take our food to the little sisters of the poor to be cooked in a communal oven. We used to pick blackberry leaves to make tea, acorns were used for coffee and sugar beet for sweetening. Salt was collected by boiling seawater. It was a long wait for liberation. We could hear the guns from the fighting in France. Finally, on VE Day, we went into Royal Square to hear Churchill's broadcast, and my grandfather gave away hundreds of British flags on sticks that he'd kept in the shop through the war. The next day, the Liberation Troops arrived, and the day after that, my uncle, who was in the Navy, knocked on the door and I had to cycle to the Bowling Green to get my father. I think occupation was much easier for us children than for our parents. Best wishes, Robert Bisson. That's all for this episode. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com. That's wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com. Or leave it on the member's site under the Family Stories tab. A reminder, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Bye for now. <laughs>